Welcome to the Learning and Performance Podcast, the show where we explore ideas, strategies, and tools for enhancing human learning and performance. I'm your host, Patrick Healy. Learning and performance are inextricably connected. If we can't learn, we can't grow. If we can't grow, we end up hitting plateaus. We repeat the same mistakes, stagnate, and fail to reach our potential. When we improve our ability to learn, we enhance our ability to perform at a higher level. Today, high performance in more and more domains increasingly depends on rapid learning. Whether you're a student, a researcher, professional, an athlete, this show discusses research and practices that you can use to learn faster and perform better. Welcome to another episode of the Learning and Performance Podcast, episode number three. Wow, it's been quite the journey so far. In episode one, I spoke with Althea Kaminsky on the science of learning. And in episode two, I spoke with Dr. Luke Hobson about instructional design in higher education. This episode, I am, man, am I excited as well. I have another good guest today. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Kurt Bonk, one of my professors at Indiana University. And this is a special treat. Dr. Bonk is a professor at Indiana University School of Education, where he teaches courses in psychology, education technology, and instructional design. He's got an eclectic background. He was a software entrepreneur, a certified public accountant, a corporate controller, and an educational psychologist who later in his career moved into the field of education technology. Kurt is a big believer in distance education himself, considering him a product of it. And he's currently conducting research in the field of self-directed online learning and open education. He's all about education technology and online learning, and he is a highly productive scholar. Dr. Monk has authored a, a mess of books, including Engaging Online Language Learners, Transformative Teaching Around the World, MOOCs and Open Education, The World is Open, so, so many more. And one of the things I really, really like about Dr. Bonk is he's super generous. He collaborates with more people than I probably know. He is great about connecting people in the field of distance learning, and he's kind and funny. I wanted to chat with Dr. Bonk today to get his thoughts about two things, mainly. One is related to online learning and where he sees online learning going in the future. He studied it for many years, and during COVID, he worked on quite a lot of research projects on how students were experiencing it and what the future of online learning might look like after COVID. Second, Dr. Bonk is a highly productive scholar. He's authored, <laughs> I want to say over a thousand papers or articles. He is highly, highly productive. So I wanted to ask him about his own routines for learning and productivity and just how he is able to produce at such a high level and has for many, many years. So with that, I bring you Dr. Kurt Bonk. Right. So I'm here with Dr. Kurt Bonk. Dr. Bonk, thanks for coming on the Learning and Performance Podcast. Great to be here. Great. So I just want to start with having you, I'll have introduced you in the pre-show, but if you can just introduce yourself very, very briefly, what do you do? How does it relate to learning and performance? Lately, I do whatever my students want me to do. <laughs> they send me a paper to edit and I edit it. So they're working me really hard this summer. 
Uh, one of them mm-hmm. is studying ChatGPT, which I'm sure all your loyal listeners would be interested in. Yeah. So we're looking at YouTubers who teach languages online and now lately are teaching languages online using ChatGPT. So we're interviewing and, and learners as well as uh, instructors and experts we're interviewing as well. So we have several projects simultaneously going on there. One paper I was working on this afternoon, about done. And so that's one project. I'm actually been, since you were in my class, I have a study looking at tango dancing. Uh, I have um, a student who's a tango dancer and very interested in that. And we looking, we're looking at self-directed learning during the pandemic, mm. as well as self-directed online learning and instruction, how people were learning how to perform with synchronous tools. The same student has me doing a project with her on massive open online courses or MOOCs in South America and the instructors. We're interviewing instructors and how they foster self-directed learning or how they create pathways for students to be successful. That same student has me working on a Duolingo study, which I'm sure your loyal listeners have heard about. Mm -hmm. We're looking at the incentives of using Duolingo or the motivational aspects and the benefits of it. What are the purposes that they're using Duolingo for? And it's not what you might typically expect. Mm. It's, you know, a lot of these software projects, online technologies, are fostering people to learn in different ways, to perform in different ways. Mm. It's not just instrumental, get a degree or get a certificate. They're just learning to have fun. They're learning to help others. They're learning to improve a skill. You know, they're they're interested in the area or they just retired or they're reskilling before going to grad school. There's all those kinds of things. There's several other studies too. We had today results back on a review of a paper on augmented learning in Yemen, a mm. student having students reading in Yemen using augmented reality of all places. And we have a couple of papers in review right now on students in Nepal who are learning from learning English from MOOCs before the pandemic and learning dozens and dozens of other things during the pandemic. So we're looking at their self-directed learning pursuits and the results, the the learning results and where they went and what they did as a result of taking some took dozens, some took over a hundred during the pandemic of these courses. Yeah. I remember watching one episode of your, of your podcast and those kids were really inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. That's one one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast, Kurt, is you have so many different projects going on all the time, and they're with so many different types of learners, uh, adult learners, students, you look at teachers and professors. If you had to, to pick, what's been the through line of your research kind of throughout your career? Ha, <laughs> I got critiqued this year in my annual report. So where's the through line? Where's the through line? <laughs> you know, there's a few other things I could say I'll hold off there. Just, you know, I've written three papers in the last year year and a half, talking about self-directed learning. One paper with Mena Jew has 15 guidelines for self-directed learning. The other paper has about a decade to 12 years of my recent research and about 20 different studies on self-directed learning, online learning. Mm-hmm. And another paper, the newest one we wrote, or I wrote, with Mena and with Shishi Lee has a checklist of 24 items for evaluating a course at in terms of self-directed learning for seven different Mm. components within the course. So, you know, if you had to take a through line for the last dozen years, it would be that. 
Yeah. But it wouldn't necessarily be that for my entire career. I've been teaching for 34, 34 years. This is my 32nd. And I, this will be year 35 coming up. So, and I was an accountant before that. Um, so yeah, you've had no, such a, such a trajectory. You were an accountant and then you, you an went educational into, psychologist uh, and now exactly. instructional tech. So, you know, three lines hard to find, but really I was saved in some ways by taking correspondence courses to get into grad school. And mm. so you would call me a non-traditional learner. In some ways, it was informal learning, but it was really formal, it was quasi-formal. In some ways, there's another alternative instruction. So I really, I'm mainly a, a through line could be not school. There's a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you kind of share the, that journey with people that you went through? I, I know that you know you don't want to hear the go. whole story, really, truly. But, you know, if you had a boss named Clarence, like I did when, when at Automated Systems back in the day, and he treated me like the staff he had. I mean, Clarence would show up at, every day at the exact same time, 20 minutes before start time, 20 minutes to 8, go to the bathroom immediately. Who knows what he did there? And they came out, and he grabbed three cans of Coke out of the refrigerator, he then put those on his desk and laid out. He grabbed five pencils and sharpened them, the, the pencil sharpener, and laid them out in even stack. Uh, distances on his desk so he could work all day you know 11 30 he would leave for lunch before everyone else so he could beat the crowd and then um, <laughs> he would get home get back at 12 15 early for our lunch and set the example for everyone else he'd work really hard till 10 after 5 the whole staff would be gone except maybe me and then he would hold out his finance magazines and and accounting magazines and read them for a few minutes at his desk and then go home and during the day he would have his, his houses being built within binocular distance from his office so he could watch his house being built. Talk about an anal accountant. He wanted me to be like that. And that yeah. was the third or fourth situation in a row of such people, mostly unethical mm. people. I could go on and on about other problems, but when you have that going on, you decide maybe I should be doing something else. Yeah. And then you, you ended up pivoting. Yeah. You, I took uh, courses at night and to get ready for grad school, I didn't have enough psychology as an undergrad, as an accounting major. So I had to take mm -hmm. courses at night. And so really I've been studying these alternative pathways, alternative degrees. We've got now micro credentials. You've got MOOCs, massive open online class. You got just blended and online learning, free courses and free books, open textbooks. All this stuff is related to giving mm -hmm. people avenues to learn where they're not stuck with the prescribed ways to learn that someone else mandates them. So, you know, I'm, I guess the, the through line is finding alternatives from boring. Yeah. Yeah. Finding hope within one's life, giving people hope to succeed. So I've created a couple free books. If mm. you go to ed tech books, you know, um, type in ed tech books, one word, you can find my two books and one special issue there just got posted this past week. Yeah. We could throw, we could throw links in the show notes too. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I've got one book that's been downloaded 250,000 times before the counter broke. So it's probably, that was early on, it's probably been downloaded close to a million times. So the through line is to help other people to get access to education, right? Yeah. What you call it, a particular study, I'm studying Duolingo, I'm studying, you know, um, tango dancing or whatever it is that, that we're studying as a group. You know, I've got one study impressed right now, well, almost impressed right now, with a British Journal of EdTech looking at online proctoring. What's well, not my area of interest? It was one of my students' dissertations. She asked me to help. And I'd say half of what I do, if not more than half, maybe 75%, is because it's one of my students is interested in and asks for my help on it. And mm. I do, you know, reshape it. And it's, 
it got us into three categories. One, life change from technology. So in particular, mm -hmm. like my life change, I'm interested in studying how people's lives have changed from using MIT open courseware, maybe taking, mm -hmm. dabbling in and taking a course or two and getting ready for graduate school by taking a, you know, a course in anatomy or a course in statistics or algebra, whatever it is, um, to reskill themselves because they've been out for 20 years. So I'm, I'm looking at life change uh, in all sorts of ways, shapes, means, you know, Duolingo study. You know, if you learn Japanese, you can travel to Japan and spend part of, you know, a month or two there. It's a life change, life changing moment. So that's one thing that I, I've been looking at uh, in particular. The second is self-directed learning, self-directed online learning in particular. And as I said, I've written three papers, kind of reflective, kind of practitioner oriented so to kind of get a sense of what can we do with all that research? Can we turn into a checklist? Can we turn into a set of guidelines? Can we do an instrument, a self-evaluation instrument, all that? Mm. So that's the second thing. But I think if you also had to had to search back to my research over the past 20, 30 years, it's really the third strand would be um, looking at emerging technologies, whether it's wikis mm -hmm. or podcasts like this one or learning from blog posting or MOOCs or whatever the emerging technology is. I didn't say that one first because you don't want to just be chasing technologies. You don't want that to right. be your life. can be. Mm -hmm. Even if you do it for a little bit, it all of a sudden becomes your life. So I mentioned the other two first. And if I had to pick a fourth thing and final one to end with, it would be, well, I'll pick a fifth too. It would be online and blended learning, you know, and, and learning through online environments. Because I've done a lot of early studies. I was one of the first ones doing, maybe the first one at IU doing blended learning. I have a handbook of blended learning from 19, or from 2006. So there's, you know, a lot of blended and mixed methods, but also fully online. And I studied corporate training online. I studied mm -hmm. higher ed online. I studied different countries and compared them. I had sponsors for my research and I worked the military with the army, looking at blended learning in the military, in the, the National Guards course, the Captain Career course, we're looking at blended learning. So I'd say the fourth strand would be forms of online and blended learning. And then if there was a fifth strand, It'd be thinking skills, how technology can augment, enhance, have a play a role in thinking skills, of, you know, critical thinking, creative thinking, collaboration. So I was interested in collaborative technologies like Google Docs before we had Google Docs. You know, I was 30 years ago, I did a national survey of collaborative technologies well before Google Docs existed. So, yeah. you know, I've been interested in the, the ways in which we can enhance thinking. And my first, my dissertation and my first paper published was called Thinking Skills and the Computer. And my dissertation was on convergent, divergent uses of software to enhance children's critical and creative thinking. So, you know, I've been interested in that over the long haul. So those five strands, yeah, there would be other strands as well that come and go. Wikibooks was the emerging technologies. In there, we were looking at, you know, how people construct knowledge and negotiate and share and all that within that setting, how they collaborate in, across institutionally, cross-culturally. I'll stop there. Yeah. Kurt, when you're thinking about all of these studies, just running them, how are you thinking about measuring variables in terms of measuring learning or measuring performance? Like, how do you, how do you see those two relating? You know, when, I, when we're interviewing people who are using MIT OpenCourseWare about 10 years ago, and we start asking them, you know, questions about measurement and so forth. And, you know, the people we were interviewing, the people we surveyed in the open-ended question said, as soon as someone wants to start measuring, I want out. <laughs> I want out. So they were using MIT courseware. They were using, you know, the, the free and open online classes. They were using MOOCs in the early days of MOOCs. 
for their own self-interest, for their own purpose, for their own passion. And if someone starts to give them an exam or a quiz, they stop, you know, they, they, they had enough of those things over their lifespan, yeah. hit, hitting up with tests and all that repeatedly. And this is their one chance to, to learn without something hanging over the top saying, well, we're going to assess if you really learn. We don't believe that you learned anything. So we got to know this. We got to give you a test. The state won't give us any funds unless we, there actually has to be a learning outcome. It can't just be fun in this. It can't just be, you know, coasting. We got to, we got to make it a stressful thing for you. So, so yeah, so I had to put that comment in there just to say, maybe, I don't know if it's true, but I'd say maybe the majority of people who learn in non-traditional fashion they're not doing it for a degree, a credential certificate, or some kind of instrumental reason, some kind of outside other assessing them in some way, shape, or form. They're doing it because they want to, a lot of them, they want to help their community. You know, yeah. they want to learn a skill that maybe environmental cleanup might be something to help the boys' clubs and girls' club. You know, they're, they're learning something, they're learning maybe a technology skill or learning, you know, leadership or communication skills, presentation skills, whatever it is to improve who they, to grow as a human being, but also, also to play a role within society. And so we can go back to your question, I think, and as to what are measures that I utilize in experiments of self-directed online learning and to show that it actually is happening and it is beneficial. Most of my studies are triangulated with three-pronged approaches in terms of MOOCs, anyhow, through content analyses. We look under the hood of the class, basically. We do, we do surveys of students or in, we, mostly instructors because we have a large database of 3,000 MOOC instructors that we've collected. And then we might have focus groups, you know, and discuss with them. And we might have or, and or interviews. So if it's focus groups and or interviews, that's four things. Content yeah. analysis, surveys, interviews, focus groups, which we had in the Nepal study, but we haven't had in too many other ones. We typically don't get to the stage of focus groups, but we, we sh probably should do more of that. So there's typically three parts, and the yeah. interviews usually spring from the surveys as opposed to the, the surveys springing from the interviews, although we could do that. Some of the surveys are... Part you, you utilizing an instrument of someone else, and part something that's related to our study. So there might be a self-efficacy instrument, or there might be an instrument about uh, social presence or cognitive presence. There might be an instrument about identity as a learner, basically self-efficacy too. So and perceptions of openness, whatever the instrument is, we could embed that within our survey and then ask other questions about what our particular uh, study is about. And, and do two things within that survey. And I'd say about for a while there, almost every one of our studies was, was doing a combination of things. Yeah. We have a study uh, during the early days of the pandemic within MOOCs, we had an altruism um, instrument. I can't remember why we had altruism in there, maybe because they were giving themselves to offer a MOOC for free online, but um, engagement, there's learner engagement instruments. We've had utilized those in a number of studies looking at learning engagement. And then we have to look at the three-pronged of self-directed learning. Um, Brandy Garrison has a model which talks about self-monitoring, self-management, mm -hmm. and motivation. Mm -hmm. So those three prongs, 
might get at what self-directed learning is or the whether it's you know, the degree to which it's embedded in that environment. And I, I can't remember who the author was of that instrument, but originally the, met, the, the model or the framework was designed by Randy Garrison of the University of Calgary, an old friend of mine who's now retired, 1997. Again, so some of these, these uh, cognitive structures or frameworks or psychological structures or frameworks come from existing theorists like Bandura on self-efficacy, like Randy right. Garrison and self-directed learning, and whomever on engagement and social presence and on and on and on. And then uh, we adapt and modify them for our study, right? Yeah. And, and, and go from there. I don't think the early players, any well, they're all dying off. Bandura died last year, year before. You know, Bruner died before that. I mean... We're, we're not left with many of the old guard anymore. And so a lot of new new things are springing up, which is good, actually, in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Kurt, when you said, uh, when you mentioned all those psychological variables, you mentioned like self-efficacy, you mentioned self-directed learning. I think you even mentioned altruism. Do you, do you capture engagement? You know, um, yeah. you could, I mean, you could look at a lot of different things, feedback that's in these environments, you know, degree of relevancy. I mean, all these things, goal setting. Yeah. But yeah. Do you measure those to see how those predict learning or what, what is the, the purpose of measuring those? Yeah. We look at their perceptions and how they, they, they do predict, um, not learning because we don't have learning out there. We don't collect learning data. We don't mm -hmm. collect any test scores. Right. Less they already exist. So I have to, so you know, there are these national surveys and all these other things that a couple of my Korean colleagues have, you know, utilized on part of those studies. But me in particular, I don't think I've given a test out in 20 years. I mean, in, in, my, in my studies, I don't think I've given a pre-post instrument. I could be wrong, but I think it's maybe 25 years since I've been and, and the field of educational psychology and instructional technology has moved away from pre pre post testing, AB mm. designs, control group designs. You get this, you get that, you don't get this, you don't get that. Typically studying an intact group and looking at uh, changes over time in attitudes. Mm. Well, we do look at motivation, you know, there are motivation instruments and the impact on of something on motivation, but even there, I don't think we've done pre-post tests that often. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, um, is, is your, I guess your Y variable or your outcome variable, do you look, I know you look at engagement for some of your studies, like what, what predicts engagement? Yeah. What have you learned about some of the variables and especially in online courses that can engage students? Oh, there are a lot of things that instructors can do to foster mm -hmm. engagement, social presence is among them. Just the, you know, the personalization, you using their names, you know, having reminders within the course, having set expectations and goals that you establish, you know, in terms of participation within the course, uh, modeling, role modeling of the instructor for the students to, you know, to be the one of those that's not a procrastinator. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm very guilty of that recently. You know, ebbs and flows sometimes for me. <laughs> Some semesters I'm like the first one in, the other semesters I'm like the last one I was in. I, I, I can't explain it. I actually can't explain it. In Some semesters you get really 
students who are really energized and, and, and intrigued with what's going on, they're all, all in right away. So sometimes we've looked at length of posts, syntactic, syntactic complexity of the posts, you know, words mm. per sentence, those kinds of things. That might be an indicator of engagement. You might look at resources that they, you know, supplement within the course. In fact, I had a, where was I? Where I said, you know, you really should look at the supplemental resources that people bring in. Uh, in Sunmei's study last semester, in her dissertation defense last week, Sunmei Seoul said all these students in the discussions were offering other resources and links to books and all this stuff. Well, yeah. that's a definite sign of engagement. It's not yeah. engagement itself as a sign or a, a, a indicator of students wanting to help each other out and want to be a good citizen, if you will, and want to utilize their knowledge to share with, with other people. So, so yeah, in, engagement could be the, 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 the level or the, the number of interaction patterns back and forthness within the threads or engagement could be indicated by that. Engagement could be, again, depth of one's posts. You can also look at the, not only syntactic complexity, but cognitive complexity, right? Mm. And so you'd be looking at the thought, the individual idea units, and how many idea units are embedded in each post. That might mm. be a sign of engagement. And we've done that early on. We were looking at that in, my, in the 1990s. was among the things that we looked at not only threads, number of threads, number of words, but look at the idea units within the threads and how the idea units changed over time, which types of idea units or which type of responding were fostering the most responses, you know? And of course, you, as you would expect, it was the students who were posting conflicting points of view and causing yeah, dis dissonance right. or cognitive tension. And often the subject line itself would matter. How you labeled that subject line would indicate how often you know and what types of ways and one would respond to that post so yeah yeah um yeah what i like about your studies dr bonk is i some studies will have very simple definitions of, of learning or performance it'll be very kind of quantitative and outcome based where i like in a lot of your studies that you as you said take multiple multiple approaches like multiple variables and we'll use multiple methods um, can you explain for the listeners what, what content analysis is? You you mentioned that. I think people will know what surveys, interviews, focus groups, those are. But can you go a little, a little deeper on content analysis? Well, you can imagine one would be downloading the entire discussion forum, you know, that's taking place during the semester in 15 weeks. Maybe we maybe we utilize the discussion forum for half of that time, let's say. I mean, most of the time, it's, it's the full 15 to 16 weeks, but let's say half. So we take those those threads from the eight weeks that we have, you know, so weeks two through nine, and we put that into a Word document of some kind each week, and then we have some kind of a scheme, a rubric for analyzing each post of whether it might be, the post might be a feedback, might be social acknowledgments, it might be a, um, questioning, might be embedded in that theme. You know, it's so, so we're looking at, in that case, we're doing, we're taking all the content, we've dumped it all out, we'll create a Word file for all of it, we put it, or put it in Excel document, whatever we want to do it. And then we, uh, we have our rubric that we compare those, the, the items in our rubric, what we're looking for, maybe it's critical thinking, you know, uh, inferencing, you know, um, some, some other, or, or, or really for creativity, some, you know, the number of ideas, original ideas, 
the flexibility of one's ideas and so forth. So whatever the, whatever the scheme is, you take all mm -hmm. that content and you analyze the data according to that. You might not have a, have a structure coming in before you do your study that might evolve over time. And that's called free coding. So you start coding things and then you eventually create categories for those codes. And then you, mm -hmm. you create the framework after. Or in my early days, it was some of both. I would say we created the categories for themes and, and then created our rubrics. And then we use that rubric for the next few studies after that. So content, if it's a discussion forum, is all discussions. It could also be concept maps that you create around the discussion forum or could be links to other content as well. So hyperlinking, mm. that extends in all sorts of directions. So I, I can't say that I've looked at the supplemental resources all that much, but again, just, I don't know, the defense we had last week was on, I'm blinking now, but I think it was Wednesday. And that I said that could be a great study <laughs> for someone else. Yeah. So, so it's of interest, you know. Yeah. I want to move now, Dr. Bonk, to talk about your personal kind of routine around. You're, I know you're a big reader. You love to learn. You're going, going, going all the time. What are some habits or routines that you have in place to be so productive? Well, I have... I don't want to give away all my trade secrets. No one's paying for the show. Come on. <laughs> no, I have, I have, of all things, I utilize WordPerfect. I'm sorry, PowerPoint. <laughs> WordPerfect, that was my mm -hmm. dissertation. PowerPoint. Every time I'm reading something that looks interesting and I don't have time to read the full on, or maybe I never, if I don't want to print it all out, I take a screenshot, put it into a slide in PowerPoint, and above it, I put the URL, I put the date, I put the, the, the title, I put the authors. And if I want to utilize that article later on, I've got everything right there to utilize. And last night, I was working on an article on the ChatGPT study, and I mm -hmm. added six or seven references within like 10, 15, 20 minutes to that study because I had them all at the ready. I had all these. So mm -hmm. over the course of a year, when I was doing sometimes over 100 talks a year, of which 20 25 could be keynotes, 30 maybe. Um, now it's much less than that. At most, maybe 30 talks a year, 35 a year at the most, you know, and, you know, that's comparatively small. But I still have that same PowerPoint slide deck. And every time it, that gets expanded, I have the old stuff that some of it I keep and save, some of it I file away by year. And so I can look by year what was interesting in 2021, what was interesting in 2011, what was interesting in 2007. Yeah. But when I have a keynote, someone's asked me, I, I look at that slide deck and I go back and go, oh, this would be good to put in my next keynote. And I just update the keynote with all the new news and all the new articles. And, uh, and, and then I try and come up with something creative to introduce it. I used to be really good at coming up with creative skits and costuming and all sorts of three-part staging and you know, getting someone to help me from the audience. And, you know, it's really kind of crazy. That was about 15, 20 years ago. It really got a little out of hand. I was in Barcelona doing the skits with the vice presidents of WebCT on stage with me of fake guitars and drums playing My Sharona, the song. And we, I wrote, rewrote the song lyrics to Barcelona. Instead of I want my MTV from Dire Straits, I want my WebCT, which was, you know, the WebCT group, not black. Anyhow, I was having fun doing that kind of stuff. I also, on my homepage, have a file folder called Work File. And if you click on that file off the desktop, you can see every year's in the last 20 years and click on 2011, 15, whatever. 
and then find out the articles that I was working on or whatever I was by, you know, by day and so forth. So I can easily go back and find what I am working on. The third thing that I do and I transferred from a work file, most of the, what was in the work file, I moved to publications because right now I'm usually just working on an article for publications. So by year, I put a PDF of every article published so I can find if, if Patrick writes me an email and can you send me this, you know, your copy of the book well, or a chapter from your book? Or can you send me the article you worked on in 2005 that was published? And that's where I can go and find it. Also in that same file, I have put a, a file subfolder in there, uh, articles in review. And so every iteration of that article can be found by year. And because everything gets rejected well, at least once. There's no, no yeah, free right, ride. Right. So yeah, might as well save that. And it comes in handy. People want to see a revision table today i've sent in twice today or once today once i sent copies of revision tables just so people can see how to make revisions and how to respond Mm. how to be nice to editors most of the students just don't don't understand how to be polite i mean they they are polite but just don't understand how important it is to be humble and polite to the yeah to the reviewers and to be thankful to the reviewers don't get mad at the reviewers of course, you can disagree with them from time to time. And, you know, so part of my secret is not really a secret, just, you know, it's all these combined methods are helpful in helping one become more productive. And, and again, I have teams that have ideas and I say, oh, let's go, you know, you got a great idea. Let's do that. Yeah, I don't, I can be third author or, you know, second author, whatever it's going to be. I, I try to let them be empowered. I like to try to let my, my team have autonomy. I try and be flexible and I do my part. You know, I'm often working two shifts a day, 10 to six and six to three 30, you know, so mm-hmm. I seven days a week, 365 days a year. So they, you know, they can't say, you know, I didn't do my part. So if I'm doing my, and I do, I do take breaks and I need to take more and so forth, but then they're, you know, they're willing to pitch in and combined. We're pretty productive as I've got some really brilliant people I call them P-squared, positive and productive, P-squared people. Mm. And that's the best people to work with. And some of them have been just on a on a terror of publishing in the last few years. Uh, I got one now. She's a master's student. She's going up to Purdue. We we didn't accept her in our program because we should, we should have. I just shouldn't say, but yes, I'm not happy that she wasn't accepted for our doctoral program or PhD. And, but Purdue gave her a full ride and gave her funding and so forth, but we're still going to work together. And she's just, to, just her mom was a visiting scholar in my class. She showed up as an undergrad, 21 years old, said in class, and she decided to stay at, at IU, you know? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. She turned 27 yesterday. Um, she'd been around for six years, you know, here back and forth from China. But yeah, there's just some incredible people that kind of walk in to and, and come into our program within IST and so many of them, it's maybe bef- I, I'm working with someone before they enter. I'm working with some, most of them after they leave the program. I stay in touch with everybody, and right, you know, I'm working with a whole bunch of folks. So, I guess one thing is keeping track of things and files. You know, reading things. How do I? You know, I, I read. So, I have a bad habit of printing things out, and then <laughs> taking and then taking all that paper once a year to recycling. You know, so I do recycle it all. But I I, I like paper, and I mark it up. But I, I now have a file. I have another file I didn't mention called Articles to Read. And I, in the mm-hmm. Articles to Read, I have a topic might be 
universal design for learning. A topic might be micro-credentialing. A topic might be self-directed learning, as I mentioned earlier. It might be economy or yeah. robotics or AI. And this files in some topics like AI right now is just exploding. So I have subfiles right. and so forth. So on my desktop, I have a, a file, all these articles to read. I don't necessarily have to print them out anymore if I structure them the right way. It's, it's, it's kind of long in terms of topics. And when I teach R678 on emerging learning technologies, I go through that file, every article in that file to see whether I want to include them in that class or not. Because that class mm. has a 100-page syllabus. It's in it, it needs updating. Yeah, that's your famous 100-page yeah, syllabus yeah. class. Yeah, yeah the yeah. monster syllabus class, which I'm I'm hoping to teach this coming spring, the next spring. Yeah. So we'll see if that happens. I mean, it's still spring now, so you know it's hard. It seems like summer, but it's technically still yeah. spring. Almost, almost, yeah, almost summer. Um, so I heard in your current in your answer, I heard very structured around sort of knowledge capture with with your your PowerPoint system. Mm -hmm. uh, knowledge document. Yeah, all these other yeah, I got like four different structure files folders, but the PowerPoint thing is something unique. I think you know having a slide with each article that yeah just pops up there, right? Yeah, and then I heard uh, like knowledge documentation too, so you're able to not only use it yourself but share it with people really quickly. Mm, sure, right. That's the key part. Yeah, yeah. Um, you are famously fast <laughs> via email, pointing people to. Or I've heard of a few uh, a few colleagues saying, "Oh wow, Dr. Bonk is like really organized <laughs> with access to these papers." Yeah, well, I was an accountant, yeah. and then I also could tap into former students of mine sometimes, not that often, but they're you know every once in a while. It's not a topic that I'm interested in, fully interested in. I'm always interested, or it's not a topic that I'm fully knowledgeable of. So I have you know sources, I have people, and they'll say you know. I connect people. So one, uh, Rick Schreier at the University of Sas Saskatchewan up in Saskatoon nicknamed me the Node. Says you're the, the node. node. Yeah. Yeah, I've always thought of you as the like the connector. Yeah, the connector. For, you, Malcolm you know, Gladwell. You basically know everyone. The, yeah. Right. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell from Tipping Point had that notion, or the Maven, or yeah, he had these things. Yeah. Yeah. Doctor Buck, for, for um, not I guess non traditional students, what are some ways that people Today, you know, think think of a middle school or a high schooler that they can use some of these new technologies to further their learning. You know, some of these middle schoolers and high schoolers know a heck of a lot more than I do. Like <laughs> the student is going to Purdue next in August. She's showing me all these, you know, software tools that she uses to keep track and keep up on everything. You know, like Miro, like Trello, you know. There's a couple others that she's she's fond of, uh, quite a few others. So, you know, I don't think elementary students or middle school or high school, having to, here in the States, anyhow, or not talking internationally, you know, from my understanding is they're pretty savvy with these. They're digital natives in many ways. Mm. So your question was, how can they find out about, you know, what's available? Or I guess just, just based on your research, like what are some kind of nitty-gritty tactical things that they can do, either when they're studying or uh, I, presenting. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't studied K-12 students all that much in terms of their use of technology. At least hmm. my dissertation was on, my master's was, but since then I haven't really kept up with what how they can utilize. But 
you know, they can join clubs, they can join online communities. There are online study groups. There are different ones that are for K-12, you know, focused on mm-hmm. K-12 learners that get people to interact and engage. And, you know, I'd say that would be a start going computer camps, you know, computer camps, computer clubs, online communities would be three ways. And, and now a lot of states are requiring high school or middle school to take an online course in order to graduate from high school. I think Michigan Mm -hmm. was the first one that that did that and others have followed. And that was kind of prescient because that was before the pandemic, you know, and then they had to learn online. So they were giving them skills to learn in online environments. It was pretty beneficial for those people to have some skills in taking courses and also their instructors in teaching courses. So I think, you know, sometimes we frown on government, state, or federal mandates. But, you know, in this case, that was one way to jumpstart people into keeping up on, on the changes that were happening, especially teachers, and offering yeah. professional development to those teachers so that they, in turn, could be helping their students to learn in these newfangled online synchronous or async environments. Yeah. Yeah. On the flip side, what advice do you have for online instructors in using some, like you mentioned, ChatGPT or some of these new newer technologies for student learning? Well, these online gradebook tools and gaming tools and so forth have existed for decades for you know, the K-12 environments. I had a major project in the state of Indiana for technology integration in 1998 to 2003. So that's 20 years, over 20 years ago. And, and we were, we, you know, said to start with small successes, start with, you know, uh, the simple things you can do with technology, like online lesson plans that make a difference, online grade books, you know, don't start with all the fancy things that are out there and using technology just for its sake, because that's a surefire way to have it, have it fail, to have something fail, because there'll be one or two, you know, people who are the, the adventurers out there, you know, the the early adopters, but not many. And if you go that route, but if you, if you show them how they can save time, how it's simple and how it doesn't cost much money, if you have those three aspects to it, especially you know, the part of saving time, save time, you know, yeah. and, and, or fostering engagement, it makes it more lively. It makes instruction more fun. Plus you save time. Plus you doesn't cost much money. And it's simple to use. Ease of use is a factor, right? Yeah. If you have those things there, you'll have a winning situation. The first thing will happen when you introduce any new technology or any new curriculum will be resistance. Oh, I, I don't know. That's not the first thing. First thing will yeah, be this won't this won't work here. Or, but they can't yeah. say that until they become aware of it. So first stage is awareness. Second stage is resistance. Right. Mm-hmm. And the tomatoes get thrown at Dr. Bog and, you know, virtual tomatoes or physical tomatoes get thrown at me because they say, you know, we don't want to do this. We, we never, do, you know, it's not going to happen in, here at IU. The, I remember some guys from biology saying, well, I teach undergraduate freshmen. This, we don't have to worry about this online learning stuff. It's not going to affect us. And right. On and on. <laughs> you know, we're going to have these large section college classes forever. I don't have to worry about this. You know, and I remember a dean of the law school at Duquesne University in in Pittsburgh. And he says, oh, other people got to worry about this in education school and nursing. Here in law, we don't have to worry about online learning and all that stuff. You know, I remember going to 
to to Australia 20 years ago, and people in Australia saying, "Dr. Bonk, we, you know, we don't share here in Australia. We're all siloed. We have our little offices, and you know, and, and we don't share in Australia. They're sharing in the U.S., but we don't do it. So don't worry about you know, blah blah blah." And then I, after going to Australia, but the next week I was in the U.K. and the guy stands up and says, "Dr. Bonk." They might be sharing in the Australia. They might be sharing in the in the U.S., but we don't share here in Australia. <laughs> and then I came home, and gave a talk, and they said, someone says, so, well, they might be sharing in, in the U.K. They might be sharing in Australia, but we aren't sharing here in the yeah. U.S.A. So we're always looking at the other places to do it, but we're not doing that here. You know, so this is pervasive. You know, this notion of first comes awareness, then comes resistance, then comes understanding of what's possible and how to use it, the ease of use. Mm. then you know, uh, becomes doing, doing something with it, utilizing it, employing it for in some way, shape mm -hmm. or form that betters the instructional environment, the learning environment that you're trying to establish. So you've got awareness, understanding, awareness, resistance, understanding, doing something, and then mm -hmm. comes um, sharing what you're doing with other people. And then the final stage becomes advocacy. So in the front end, you're resisting like everybody. And then finally, once you've tackled it and conquered that, you're going to be out there in the front lines as well. But that's in the yeah. later stages as uh, as an advocate. Yeah. Yeah. You've drunk the Kool-Aid and now you're you're doing the opposite. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For um, for learning designers working with faculty members or or instruct online instructors, what are some in your experience, what are some ways to sort of bridge that? gap between i see a big gap between the resistance and then the understanding okay so um, how how can they reduce resistance to get people to understand some of the benefits of the of these technologies yeah in my adding tech variety book which is free for anyone watching this podcast just go to techvariety.com mm -hmm. dash variety.com will get you there too no dash with a dash i think you can find it you get in chinese or english at the end the second last chapter we talk about how to deal with resistant you know, instructors. We have 10 things that we mentioned in there. Um, you, know, you know, training programs, of course, professional development, but one-to-one -one tutoring and mentoring, you know, having some office, you know, consult consultative persons in there, but maybe saving those training sessions for, you know, even TikTok videos, you know, <laughs> so having some video-based tutorial training um, is, is a one way in which one might feel more comp competent and confident, especially when they can go to them without looking like they're a fool, like they're brain dead, because they're talking, you know, they're watching the technology show them, not another human being, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, they, it's a kind of a quiet sell to the instructors out there. Also, having technology days on campuses or in school or Posters all around to showcase what people are doing. So changing the language from one of resistance to one of openness and sharing. Here at Indiana, mm -hmm. we've got um, this one day where we, uh, you know, a matchmaking day where we, you know, match people up uh, with technologies that they want to learn instead of mm -hmm. matching up, you know, what do they call those where you meet another person, you might become a lover, you know, speed, uh, speed, speed dating. Yeah, we have speed dating with technology. Uh, it's very popular. So you can learn five or six new technology tools within an hour. You have these speed yeah. dating sessions, right? So that's that, yeah. that's that can be done. You can also have stipends, little pots of money for experimentation with technologies. And we've done that in the past. 
That's one thing that has worked. Um, you can uh, also have um, best practices be shared online, exemplars and so forth. Big hits, short, you know, one minute big hit kinds of things. It doesn't take you long to read and, and to ramp up on those kinds of things. And then to save those as a resource later to have right. those things to utilize. Um, there are other things that you can do for the resistant people out there, but just again, role modeling, what's, what's, you know, people are, 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 have done at the beginning of department meetings, you could have, or end of the department meeting, you can have one or two people show what they've done with technology lately in their classes for five minutes each, just to get other yeah. people interested. So again, making it part of the scene, part of what is there, part of who you are as an organization or unit. Uh, mm. That's one way to overcome, but with, don't, without embarrassing people, because that only make it more, more they'll, they'll in, increase the resistance, reluctance, resistance, reticence, all the R words, right? Yeah, yeah. The number of tomatoes yeah. I get thrown at. So those are among them. There are more ways, like my free book. That's a way. There's 100 activities in that free book, Adding Tech Variety, 100, 100 plus ways for motivation for motivating and retaining learners online. You know, that's a way to do it. We have a follow-up that came out in 2014. Now in 2022, we have a shortened version, an updated version with a free class. Okay. So mm -hmm. there's another way in which we can, and we have it listed at EdTech Books. Well, that's another thing that could be possible. So I'm just saying all these ways in which you you could find it at EdTech Books. You could find it on, uh, online at my, my home. You could see it in a poster session on campus. You know, the more ways yeah. in which one finds it it's pervasive and um and then sharing the quick hits the things that work i mean yeah so i have yeah. my book 100 ideas and every one of those 100 ideas is listed from the degree of time risk and cost so we list the right. low risk low cost low time and if you can find five ideas that are low risk Start low cost low time and i might try a couple of those out okay so yeah i'm on my yeah. way well, yeah, and we'll post those books in the, in the show notes. I've I've used uh, especially your tech variety book in in my instructional design, and it has been a big help. Yeah, I like those three those three criteria. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have a, we have like five ten minutes left. I want to do um, just to finish some rapid fire questions. Oh, what kind of so fish Dr. do I like to catch? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, so if you didn't do what you do now, what would you be doing, and why? History teacher. Because I, I have a brain that understands dates and people. I can tell people where they were sitting in the room 30 years later. And mm -hmm. I'm pretty good with dates. And I've always been um, particularly a humanities teacher, maybe Eastern religion. I have to, I have to, I'm studying a lot of American history and presidential history and so forth. So that would be an area that, that I would want to be. And then sociology, because I see sometimes mm -hmm. the, the macro structure, the big picture. My son's that way too. Trying to look at macro trends in society, maybe economics. I really did good in economics, and I like mm. the instructor. Um, and maybe <clears throat> I, if I had to seriously do, you know, college over, I wouldn't do accounting. So I could maybe do a sociology or do economics com or combined or org behavior, getting into psychology yeah. in some ways. Um, that would be interesting as well. Yeah, so kind of in the in the area of the social sciences. Yeah, maybe communication, presentation skills, that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. Those kinds of things. You know, I think just how to treat people respectfully, you know. Yeah. 
if um if you had to get a tattoo of a short phrase or quote, what would it be? Well, I'm not getting a tattoo, so I not have to worry about it. I'll think about that. You know, I always tell people to make a dent. So maybe I'd call it make a dent. Make a dent. Make a dent. Make a difference, you know. And it'd be a kind of a interesting make a dent. You can make a real interesting photo or picture of that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I went to South by Southwest EDU and Chuck Severance I knew had a tattoo for uh, Sakai which was on course after our learning management system, which he was in charge of. He, we had a debate, a great debate, debating each other. I forget what the topic was. And I brought boxing gloves and a headgear. We beat each other. And it was a real humorous kind of thing. Um, it was bef- right before I think Bill Gates was the keynote speaker after us or someone real famous was. Anyways, um, he took off his shirt. He had a tank top on. I knew he was going to show his tattoo. And uh, so I got um, smart about that, and I ordered fake tattoos from Amazon and put them on my arm so I could take off my shirt and show my tattoos <laughs> or roll up my yeah. sleeves and show my tattoos. So so I have had fake tattoos for a boxing a cage match. I'll try and find that. I think it might still be – it was recorded. It might still be online. The Chronicle of Higher Ed covered it and all that. So, yeah, those are, that would be my tattoo, I guess, for now, make a dent. Make a dent, yeah. yeah. I like that, yeah. What's something that you're currently really excited about? You know, everyone's going to say AI, AI, I don't know, you know. Um, what am I excited about? Jeez. I'd say working on the second edition, and I'm not, of the World is Open book, and I'm calling it the World is Wide Open. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about the possibilities to, to be working on that someday. <laughs> someday, not yeah. now. Um, can you can you tell listeners more about that that book? Yeah, well, the World is Open book talks about ten trends, similar to Thomas Friedman's book, The World is Flat. He had ten trends mm-hmm. that were making society flat. I have ten trends that are making education more open, called Ten Openers. And I've written one book, and probably my best selling book. And I cut half of the book out. I was going to give away the other half for free. I never quite finished the last chapter. But I was going to do a follow-up book, so I had The World is Open, The World is More Open, which never came out, and The World is Wide Open, which is going to talk about how people's lives change from technology, which I talked mm-hmm. about earlier as the number one interest. I'm interested in life change. So I think that, you know, I have a friend named Jimma Nagaya in Nigeria, and he now he's in Canada. He and his wife took over 100 MOOCs. He took 700 before they started costing money and whatnot. Yeah. So... Um, those kinds of people. I mean, the world is open book. I, I interview a lot of people who had interesting lives, like the woman who studies the water flow at the Arctic, you know, and she's learning from podcasts as she's doing her research on the ice up in the Arctic. You know, I've I interviewed, you know, there are people who drove their, um, their sailboat around the world, you know, and we're learning online through, through a satellite. You know, I'm interested in that through learning a, a, online from boats, planes, trains, prisons. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're yeah. going to have at least one person who's going to be interesting in prison soon. Um, whether he'll learn it or not, I don't know. But uh, I'm interested <laughs> in how people, you know, what kind of learning environments exist out there because learning exists wherever humanity has gone. You know, up in the space shuttle, they have once a week they send education down to kids in schools, right? Mm. 
You know, we have several, we have a project, the Jason project, where kids were controlling submarines underwater, you know, so you know, learning is happening all over the world. It'd be really interesting to document aspects of that, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I like, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure our listeners too find inspiring just the the range of, of context that, that, uh, that learning can occur that you, that you study. Right, right. That's, you know, I, I, it's really interesting. One can study learning. You know, when, before grad school, I went to the library, had to the local the small library and had a books on learning. I'm like, wow, really have books on learning? People study learning? You know, it would yeah. be great to major in it. And so I did, you know, as a doctoral student learning and I double majored learning and development. So, so I think we have a few minutes left. We have three according to my yeah, watch. I have, yeah, I have uh, one more. So what's something that you're currently worried about? Climate change, but... Um, <laughs> Many aspects thereof, you know, we're, there's so much happening. We can see it all around us. So, yeah, that's the, the number one thing. I think, you know, we've had also problems of over-testing, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah. You know, I guess just reversing all the positive progressive educational change that has happened over the past 30 to 40 years, I'm quite a little bit worried. We've moved to more of a constructivistic type of environment, social constructivistic, Yet we still use learning management systems to manage learners when we're moving towards environments where that are more autonomous and free and learner-based. So how that's going to play out in the long run is kind of worrisome to me. You know, how we have competing forces. We still have behavioral models winning out in many ways in terms of how we are giving feedback to people and their successes or failures. Um, or lack of success. So I would say, you know, the pendulum switched, you know, the pendulum's towards more progressive educational models over the past 40 years. But the pendulum moves back and forth constantly, you know, and with things that we've seen in the news over the past year or two, um, which are a lot, which wouldn't be considered progressive educationally, Right. The banning of books, for instance, is one thing moving us back. The pendulum is moving back when we're banning people from reading things, you know, and and and, and the the curtailing of diversity, equity, inclusion statements of what one believes in in terms of diversity, not being allowed to write a statement even about diversity. That's kind of worrisome. You know, not even thinking about how how we can create a class that's a learning environment that's accepting of all the various diversities that are in front of us. You know, if we can't yeah. talk, talk about that, that's worrisome. So I guess, you know, yeah, to, to have a free and open educational world where one can explore their visions, their volitions, their passions without having to worry about this other baggage and uh, layered mm-hmm. over the top. And, and you know, we had the back to the basics movements and we had the, the you know, reach to whatever it was, reach to the top or soar to the top, whatever. You know, they're always about assessments and, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're not about human beings. You know, I, I, I worry that when we talk about performance, you know, we, we talk about what one, what one thinks personally, individually performance is to them, not mm-hmm. what some outside agency or outside other or community thinks performance is 
First, it has, yeah. to be it has to be an individual concept that one grasps and one aspires to and one strives to, has volition and passion to move towards. We want people to, to we don't want avoidance motivation. You know, we want, mm -hmm. we want people to, to select what's within reason, what's motivating to them to pursue and explore. In today's market, as we're moving towards more robotics and AI, there's going to be a, a constraining, a little limitation in terms of what opportunities are out there to pursue. And there's always going to be an expansion of what opportunities are out there to pursue. It's going to be bold. Yeah. And, and it's going to be incumbent on us to be um, helpful in, in career choices, you know, in, in giving assistance for one's career choices. The human development counselor who understands how mm. the internet can be a tool for learning is going to be mm -hmm. golden, you know. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is the age of, you know, where we where we create the super mentor, super counselor, who understands mm -hmm. a discipline of some kind and understands human development because they minored in it or took a certificate in human development or counseling, and then understands the internet and technologies as a tool to supplement or augment and enhance and perhaps even eventually transform one's learning that yeah. would, that would be you know the the ideal world i think out there because then the quest becomes both an individual one one's path as well as a, a human supported one i think technology mm -hmm. supported one as well but there also has to be a human support or an aspect of human support within the loop yeah so I like your point. I like your point about uh, individualized performance. This show is about how individual people can enhance their learning and performance. Mm. And it's not just in terms of performance, you know, it's not just about test scores or uh, kind of so, more socially acceptable measures of performance. It's yeah. how, how do you get better at whatever you want to get better at? Yeah. Sounds good. Well, I've enjoyed yeah. this show today. I, I appreciate being on. And, and if your listeners uh, want to contact me, my email is cjbonk at indiana.edu. And now cjbonk at iu.edu as well. And my, uh -huh. my homepage is kurtbonk.com. So you can find out lots of stuff there. Great. Kurt Bonk. thanks for coming on the Learning and Performance Podcast. Thank you. Wow. Whenever I speak of Dr. Bonk, I come away with new ideas, new names. He does so much and knows so many people. It's just, it's astounding. If you're interested in distance learning, open online learning, you should definitely check out Dr. Bonk's website, kurtbonk.com. Here he has resources, presentations, articles, free books. It's a repository of things related to online education and education technology, almost all of it free. You might also be interested in Dr. Bonk's new podcast called Silver Lining for Learning. Dr. Bonk and a handful of other professors in education every Saturday, every weekend, speak with guests from around the world who are teaching, researching, and studying education. They've talked to some amazing people from around the world from age, I think, 10 to 70s, and the conversations are always fascinating. That's it for this episode. And see you next month for another exciting episode of the Learning and Performance Podcast. See you then.
Okay, learners, over to you. What's one thing that you took away from this episode? Take a moment and just make a mental note of one big idea, strategy, or tool. Give it a try and see what difference it makes. And then feel free to share your experience on the webpage for this episode. Remember, improvement equals reflection plus action. What are you going to do now after listening to this episode? If you've enjoyed this episode, I've got three requests for you. First, if you'd like to receive future episodes, make sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so you'll never miss an episode. Subscribing also helps the podcast reach a wider audience and helps me to continue to produce high-quality content for the LNP community. I'd also be grateful if you could take a few minutes to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help the podcast reach a wider audience and attract more listeners and benefit from this content. Plus, your feedback helps me improve the show. So if you have a moment, leave a review and let me know what you think. Last but not least, if you really like the show, I'd appreciate it if you could share the podcast with friends or colleagues directly or via social media. When you do, make sure to share one thing you learned. Remember, when you teach something, it's like you're learning it again. That's all for today's episode of the Learning and Performance Podcast. I hope you found the things we discussed helpful and are thinking of ways you can apply them to enhance your learning and performance. Join us next time for another episode. And until then, keep on learning.